0: I apologize for the coolness of the uh, church. Came in this morning and half of our heating system was down, not working. So uh, consequently the temperature had dropped off. I think we have it working now, at least I checked after Sunday school and it was still working. So uh, we decided to put our plugs back in the window cuz uh, there's a lot of cool air comes in you start <coughs> after we pulled out. So Hopefully it will warm up here gradually and slowly for you. Revelation chapter 15 as we continue on there. Let's read the whole chapter. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, And over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. (coughs) And no man was able to enter into the temple till the plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, now as we delve into this chapter, we pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts and our minds to help us understand a little better uh, why uh, this wrath that will of yours will be poured out upon the earth at the end of the tribulation time. We pray, Lord, that you'd help our lives to be uh, drawn closer to you as a result of it. Help us to live more fully in a way that would be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Hopefully you remember that uh, what we talked about last time in chapter 14, how uh, there, especially toward the end of chapter 14, there were two uh, very graphic, vivid pictures about uh, the last two major events in the tribulation period, which had to do uh, with the seven vile judgments that are going to be poured out, which will actually be detailed in chapter 16. But there in chapter 14, it pictured those as a grain harvest. You remember, I hope you do, and how uh, there will be a, like a sickle uh, harvesting the grain of the field, or to harvest the earth, God will, with these seven vile judgments. And then, of course, the second picture in chapter 14 had to do with the Battle of Armageddon, which was portrayed as a grape harvest, in which a bunch of grapes will be put in a wine press and, uh, and pressed. And, of course, the picture of blood shed will be enormous at the Battle of Armageddon. So, that's a couple of things uh, that were pictured for us in chapter 14. Now, still, we're not quite ready to delve into all the actual details, the specific events that are going to occur. John wants to give us a little more information. God wants to give us more information about the vial judgment. He wants to, I believe, set the scene, help us understand some additional things about the vial judgment before he starts giving us, again, those details of exactly what's going to happen as each vial is poured out upon the earth. That's next week, Lord willing. In chapter 16, we'll start dealing with the actual details of the of the vials being poured out. But in the meantime, I believe, again, God is setting the scene for the vial judgments here in chapter 15. So therefore, we need to know or understand s- several different things about the vial judgments before we understand and are shown the actual details of them. So first thing I think we need to know or understand about the vile judgments are, uh, or is, that they complete God's wrath upon the earth here, in uh, according to verse 1. And that's what it tells us. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels, having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And that's so So by this phrase there, or this verse in verse 1, we see that God's wrath will be felt, obviously, during these uh, uh, vile judgments, or some people like to refer to them as bowl judgments, because the word vile here has to do with almost what you might think of, almost like an offering plate type thing, a small, kind of flat, uh, round shape object. And so vile, you might picture something tall and skinny, uh, whereas bowl is maybe a, a more vivid picture for you. Uh, it's, a, it's actually the same word, I believe, as used in the Old Testament where it talks about a censer in which they would put the coals from off the altar and it was a more of a flat uh, object, and then they would take the coals and dump them out. And that's what was going to happen here uh, in chapter 16. But we see these seven angels, they're given these bowls, these vials, these censers, uh, whatever you'd like to uh, maybe use there to describe them. But it's indicative, of, again, that God's wrath is going to be felt during the vile judgments here. Though, uh, as you'll see in chapter 16, many natural uh, uh, disaster-type things uh, will occur. There will be earthquakes and so forth. There will be... Uh, Judgment upon the sea, judgment upon the fresh water, uh, judgment upon the sun, and the Euphrates River will dry up, we'll see in one of them, and so forth. Uh, So I suppose one could try to argue that these are just natural type events, but this makes it very clear. God is involved in these judgments that fall upon the earth. And you know, as you read in chapter 16, the people on the earth at that time will understand very clearly there will not be any doubt upon the earth that God is behind these events that are happening on the earth. So that's what we see here. God's wrath will be felt during the vile judgments and people will know that it is God's wrath. Secondly, we see God's wrath will be felt prior to these vile judgments that are uh, being talked about here now notice the two phrases there in verse 1 where it talks about the seven last plagues and in them is filled up uh, the wrath of God the the idea of last plagues implies that these vile judgments uh come after the seven seal and the seven trumpet judgments and that's important because some people when they read and they study Uh, The book of Revelation, they see, because there's three groups of seven, remember? Seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and now, in chapter 16, seven vial judgments. Some people see those as all being the same thing, just talked about in a different way. But you see here, by by the word last alone, indicates there's a sequence of three sevens. That distinguishes the vile judgments from the other two sevens. So hopefully that makes good sense to you. That's a, that's the significance of even the little word last here in this verse. It is different. Last also implies that the seven seals and the seven trumpets uh, judgments were also plagues. Now I know you're going to probably say, Pastor Joe, th- those weren't plagues. Well, you have to understand the meaning of the word plague. It doesn't mean uh, some sort of a disease or an epidemic like we might think of as a plague. You know, Of course, today they're talking about the <coughs> this uh, avian bird flu type thing and the pandemic and you hear all these uh, little things in the news, right? That's what we tend to think of as a, as a, a plague or an epidemic, the bubonic plague and those kind of things is what we tend to think of. That's not what is meant here by the word plague. The word plague simply means a blow, like a strike against something, a wound, that sort of thing is what's being talked about here. So, as God is going to strike against the evil that's on the earth, in particular, he's striking who? Satan, Antichrist, and the beast. So, that's what it means here. And, of course, he not only will strike with these vile judgments, but he's already been striking with the seven seal and the seven trumpet judgments prior to this. Uh, you might think of this then as, as uh, essentially uh, God's knockout punch to try to use like a, maybe a, a boxing type analogy. He's already went a couple of rounds, so to speak. He could end it at any time but at these vile judgments that's the final flurry and Antichrist the beast Satan are going to be on the mat out cold so that's what it is talking about here, these are the last plagues, the last wounds, the last blows on Antichrist and his empire of course and God's wrath will not be felt after the vile judgments again because these are the essentially the knockout punches that are going to occur here. This will complete God's outpouring upon Antichrist and the beast and, of course, Satan. So we see that the vile judgments complete God's wrath, but they also employ seven angels. Notice there in verse 1 that seven angels are involved. Also down in verses 6 and 7, it talks about seven angels that will be given these vials and uh, so forth. And it's interesting that how God uses angels, employs angels, over and over in his judgments upon the earth. Have you realized, starting in chapter 4, every single chapter has talked about God using angels in one sense or another. And you know what? We're not done yet. If I remember correctly, and I actually kind of looked just to verify this was true, every chapter... From 4 all the way to the end of Revelation, chapter 22, God is employing angels in one form or another. So we're going to see angels again, as we've already seen. So angels are going to be very active during the whole tribulation period. That's what I, I see in our study in the book of Revelation. chapter In chapter 14 alone, one angel uh, was sent out preaching the everlasting gospel. Another angel pronounced that sure judgment that uh, was going to fall on uh, uh, Antichrist and his empire. And a third angel in chapter 14 talked about uh, eternal damnation that was going to uh, fall upon everyone who did not turn their allegiance from Antichrist and to God. So we've seen angels numerous times. And then again, during the vile judgments, God is going to employ seven angels. Thirdly, the vile judgments... Uh, uh, induce praise songs and here trying to be a little bit uh, uh, whatever using the same letter here we see the singers, the songs and then the sentiments of those songs here and uh, these uh, couple verses here verses 2 through 4 the singers of these praise songs that we see in this these uh, few verses uh, are I believe martyred saints and I don't believe how Believe you could come up with any other real honest and goodness uh, understanding of the singers, except for that. Because you'll see in verse two there, it tells us four things about them. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast. So that indicates that these will be people who had lived at least part of the time of the tribulation period, because that's when the beast is right. So. And they had gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark. They didn't take his mark. And over the number of his name, 666, six, six. and they, they stand on the sea of glass, having the heart of God, and they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Okay? Who else could that be but saved tribulation saints who refused to worship and bow down take the mark of the beast or the number of the beast and it's got to be martyred saints during the tribulation period. Remember in what we had read and studied in chapter 13, verses 7 and 17 in particular, we found there that uh, Revelation 13, 7, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So we know uh, Antichrist is going to be slaughtering people all around the whole world. And then uh, verse 17 of chapter 13 says, And no man, uh, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So it was, uh, he, he's going to bar people from buying and selling. So the ones that he doesn't actually outright kill, he'll starve to death, it appears, and will allow them to work, to buy, to sell, that sort of thing, and thus many, many who name the name of Christ will die during the tribulation period. Now, on the surface, who appears to have the victory there? It appears, humanly speaking, that Antichrist has the victory, right? That's not what it says here. Remember the word victory is the word Nike. That's where you get your name of your tennis shoes and so forth, right? Your Nikes, which just means conquer, to prevail, to overcome. So on the surface, humanly speaking, it appears that Antichrist, by barring people from buying and selling and outright attacking them, that he gains the victory over these who uh, won't worship him and only worship Christ. But that's not what it tells us here, that these individuals who refused to worship Christ actually, in God's eyes, had the victory. Victory sometimes is a little uh, matter of perception or perspective, right? Humanly speaking, sometimes we think a certain individual has the victory. But always by doing right, obeying, Being obedient to God, applying his standards, you are the real victorious one. So they have victory over the beast by their faith in Christ, and their ultimate victory came through martyrdom. And they were just ushered into heaven. We talked about that before, right? For me to live is Christ, to die is, that's victory. I don't know how you can see it in any other way, but victory for the Christian. To leave this earth will be with Christ wherever. That's victory. So these people had victory. The singers, they are martyred saints. The songs that they sing, they sing two songs that are mentioned here, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Now, uh, this Song of Moses, uh, there's two different, songs of Moses that are called that in the Old Testament. One of them is in Exodus chapter 15, and the other one is in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now, which one will they sing? That's debated among Bible students and so forth, Uh, and I don't really know. Some will even take another uh, route and say it won't necessarily be either one of them literally word-for-word type thing, and they just see this as saying uh, they will sing songs like Moses sang, like the song of Moses in those two. Now, uh, I don't really know. It is interesting to, uh, when you stop and you think, uh, the very first song in the Bible is what? I just told you. Song of Moses, okay? I didn't tell you that it was it, but uh, I just named it. It was a Song of Moses. Well, guess what the last song in the Bible is? Song of Moses. Therefore, some people use that to go all the way back to the Exodus Song of Moses and say that's the same song that will be sung. However, that particular song details information about Israel's uh, victory over uh, Pharaoh and his armies after their 400 years of captivity in Egypt, and they parted through the Red Sea. Remember, and God saw them safely walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. And once they were on the on the on the shore, the far shore, and they were safe. And the water swept back over Pharaoh and his armies. Remember, and drowned them all. And uh, uh, so it's a song of of victory, of, of God's uh, preservation. Uh, it's a song of God's deliverance, uh, destruction of your enemies, and that sort of thing is basically what they're singing about there. Now, the actual details of the song obviously wouldn't necessarily fit with this time period because we don't have a, a Pharaoh, we don't have a Pharaoh's army, but we have one that is something like a Pharaoh, Antichrist, and his armies on the earth at that time. So that's why some people say it's just, it'll be like that, not necessarily the exact same words. And, of course, uh, I, I don't really know exactly which, which one it is, but it will definitely have to do with uh, safety and, and destruction of, of the uh, enemies, uh, it seems for sure to me. Whether it's the literal words of Exodus or Deuteronomy, I, I couldn't say Uh, So that's the song of Moses, and then you have the song of the Lamb that is talked about here. Uh, And I believe these are some of the actual words that will be sung here in these these couple verses. I don't believe that's necessarily all-inclusive, the whole lyrics of the song. Uh, Some people say that it's pretty much all the songs that are talked about in the book of Revelation come up to or uh, make together the song of the Lamb. I don't know for sure. But this seems to be certainly part of the words of the Song of the Lamb here. Now, I want you to listen carefully as I read some, something that uh, uh, one of the commentators uh, wrote whenever he compared the Song of Moses with the Song of the Lamb. And I like this, so hopefully it will mean something to you. The Song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The Song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The Song of Moses was sung of of triumph over Egypt. The Song of the Lamb is sung of triumph over Babylon. Remember, Babylon is representative of the uh, Antichrist empire. The Song of Moses told how God brought his people out. The Song of the Lamb tells how God brought his people in. The Song of Moses was the first song in Scripture. The Song of the Lamb is the last. The Song of Moses commemorated the execution of the foe, the expect the expectation of the saints, and the exaltation of the Lord. The Song of the Lamb deals with the same three themes. I thought that was pretty good. So we see the singers, and then we see the songs, and then thirdly we see the sentiments. I think it's very clear uh, here that these have to do with a praise-type song, praising God for His deliverance, for His destruction of the enemies, and so forth. And but specifically here, I see about six different things that uh, that they will be praising God for. We see that they praise God for His works, and uh, and it describes His works as being what great and marvelous. That echoes Psalms. Uh, 139.14 which says I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. You see God creates. God loves. God forgives. God sustains. God does all sorts of big things, doesn't he? And that's what the word great means. Great means large. It's the word mega. His works are very large because he's a very large, very powerful God, of course, and marvelous, and that means to be wondered at. And when you stop and think about all the big things that God does, you ought to marvel at it, shouldn't you? You should really wonder at those things that God does. And we see that they praise God for his works, they praise God for his omnipotence, they refer to him as being almighty, I always like that term, that uh, that description of God uh, because he's not some mighty, he's all mighty, completely mighty, full of might, You might say. And then we see they praise God for his ways. You see that God always leads down a path that is just and true. That's how it describes his ways here. A path that is just is a path that is holy, innocent, and righteous. A path that is true leads in the right direction all the time. That's the kind of path that God leads his people on, isn't it? True, righteous, just, that's the way he wants us to live. And he always steers us in the right and proper direction, if we will only be sensitive and listen to the path that he's trying to Get us to follow. So they praise him for his ways. They praise him for his sovereignty. They refer to him here as King, King of the Saints. And they praise him for his holiness. And they refer to him there again Thou art holy. We've talked about God's holiness in the past. And for his judgments. Because his judgments are now being manifested, made known, shown openly the world. God is going to do something about this evil that has been rampant on the earth. So we see again there some things about uh, the vile judgments and fourthly the vile judgments emanate from God's sanctuary. Notice it talks about in verse 5 that they come from the temple. Temple is the word naos or you might say naos in the Greek but it That refers to a specific portion of the tabernacle or of the temple. It is the innermost part, the holiest part, referred to as the holy of holies in the Bible. Okay? So that's where these vile judgments are actually emanating from. The holy of holies. Now, it was so holy. Why was it so holy? Because this was the place where God was... Seem to be, right? This is supposed to be where God resided within the temple. So we see the vile judgments are again coming actually from God. And I think another uh, important part here is that it shows that wrath, judgment, justice however you would like to say it go hand in hand with holiness. Uh, We live in a society where people don't want to talk about wrath or judgment, justice, those type of things. Uh, You watch shows and they talk about God. If it's not a disparaging type, anti-God type program or something, then all they ever want to talk about is God's love. And we know that, of course, the Bible says God is love. But God is more than that. God is also holy and just, and pure, and so forth, and so on. And it is important that we understand that wrath is not incongruent with holiness. They, they actually go hand in hand with one another. Now suppose <coughs> you, knew so, you knew someone that had been violently uh, killed, murdered by someone, and that person uh, was taken before a court of law, And the judge just said, forget it. We're not going to do anything to him. How would you feel? You'd be irate, wouldn't you? You would demand justice. You know, I believe that intuitively we know that justice requires judgment. And this is what's being talked about here. Because God is holy, he is also just. And because God is just, he also executes judgment. And this is one manner in which he's executing judgment upon this sinful world. It is God's holiness, if I can say it this way, it is his holiness that actually causes him to pour out seven vials of judgment upon this sinful world at the end of the tribulation. Fifthly, the vial judgments interrupt heaven's activities, Uh, I'm not completely certain about uh, the significance of verse 8, although that's what it says here. It says that, And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Every commentary that I looked at or anything just pretty much skipped that part, and I don't know why. But one thing's for certain though these vile judgments are primarily impacting the earth they have an effect in heaven as well and that's really all I'm trying to say here by this the vile judgments interrupt heaven's activities now how long will they interrupt the activities in heaven I don't know that for sure, for certain either it certainly appears to me that as you read in chapter 16 that the vials are poured out in rapid sequence, one pretty much right after the other. Now, how long is the the, uh, the seven-year tribulation period? Seven years. It's kind of like what color was George Washington's white horse kind of thing, right? Uh, I give away the answer before I ask the question. Uh, So the tribulation period lasts seven years, and we saw from the book of Daniel... And so forth, that it will be broken up into two periods of three and a half years each. Remember? Now, the whole timing of all these events in the book of Revelation are matters of debate and discussion. It appears to me, and I've given you a couple reasons why I felt like we've already went past that three and a half year point earlier, but I believe we're down now to the final weeks or months of the tribulation period. Probably we're already at the six-year point or so, or maybe even six and a half years. I don't really know exactly how far we're into the tribulation. It appears then from this verse that for this short window, God's final wrath is poured out on the earth and activities in heaven will be interrupted to one degree or another. I can't say for sure. But the whole cosmos, heaven and earth, will be interrupted here when God finally, if you will, stands up and says, Enough is enough. It's time to put an end to all wickedness once and for all. I've given Satan plenty of opportunities here. Way too much leeway, so to speak. And he's going to be put in this bottomless pit for a thousand years as we find out. Time on earth as we know it will come to an end. So, again, it appears that this will last weeks or months. I doubt if it will be years, although some people believe it will be years. So today we've seen several important things about these vile judgments. We've seen that the vile judgments complete God's wrath. The vile judgments employ seven angels. The vile judgments induce praise songs. The vile judgments emanate from God's sanctuary, or we might say His holiness. The vile judgments interrupt Heaven's activities. Now that John has given us this vital setting for the vital judgments. We're ready now, finally, to see the details of them, which will come next week. I'd like to close by reading some le- some uh, words here to song, uh, inner hymn number 74. Maybe one day we'll learn it here as a church, but I don't think it's really that familiar to most of you, but if you want to look there, I think you'll find the words in this particular song fits very well with the passage that we just looked at. Number 74 Great and marvelous. All the nations shall come and bow the knee before thee. Every tribe, every tongue shall then at last adore thee. Great and marvelous are thy ways. Great and marvelous are all thy days. Great and marvelous are thy ways. Lord God Almighty, grand and glorious all thy days. King of the ages, who shall not fear thee and bring glory to thy name. Thou alone art holy. Thou alone art worthy. Great and marvelous, grand and glorious. Great and marvelous are thou, Lord. And then verse 2, true and just are thy judgments. Thy ways cannot be questioned. Wisdom guideth thy hand in blessing and destruction. Great and marvelous are thy ways, grand and glorious all thy days. And then, of course, it repeats the refrain there. You see how that fits? Many of those words are taken directly out of chapter 15 here of the book of Revelation. You know, if you're not here if you're here without Christ, you need to know that God is holy. And God loves you. God loves you so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross for you so that you might have forgiveness of sin. But you know what? God is more than holy. And God is more than love. God is also just. And He does mete out justice to all who refuse to repent of their sins and turn to Him for, for forgiveness? So make sure you do that today. Don't leave here today without trusting Him as your own personal Savior. And for the Christians that are here, those that have already been saved and trusted Christ as their personal Savior, have you ever given much thought about God's holiness? Are you reflecting in God's holiness? Elsewhere we're told to be ye holy for. I am holy, God said. So, you should give some thought about to to God's holiness and give some thought to God's ways and His works because truly, they are great and marvelous, just and true. And then, of course, God's attributes themselves. We should stop and think about them for a period of time and meditate on, on that day in and day out. And... And i tell you, if you're down in the dumps and depressed and you stop and you start thinking about what God has done, what God will do, just God Himself, His being, who He is, I don't think you'll remain down in the dumps for a long period of time. We serve a grand and glorious God who's done mighty things and will do mighty things and all the evils that have ever been done to you or ever will be done to anyone else, God's going to set all things in order someday. That should make make you feel very uh, good and, and it should be a very comforting thought to you. So I believe this passage should motivate us <clears throat> to live right. It should also motivate us to witness to others because as sure as anything, this set of judgments, these vile judgments, are going to come to pass. And we can't help but be growing growing, and uh, getting closer and closer to them being fulfilled day by day. It should motivate us to witness to others so that they wouldn't have to go through this period of time. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, now that you would be with us during their invitation time. We pray, Lord, that if someone's here and they have never trusted you as their own personal Savior, that they would do so today. We pray, Lord, that for all of us that have trusted you at some point in the past as our Savior, that you would help us to stop and to think about your holiness and your justice and your judgments that will come. And then we pray, Lord, that you'd help motivate us just to to live right and to do right, talk right, and so forth. And we pray, Lord, that you would then help us to be more active in our witnessing and telling others about you so that those that are lost will not have to go through the tribulation period should you come today or, or anytime soon. We pray these things now in your, in your son's name. Amen.